Welcome back to Well Not Perfect. Today I sit down with an extremely wise, humorous, and lovely guest who I absolutely admire in the field of counseling and entrepreneurship. I can't wait for you to meet her. Sarah Bueno is the CEO and founder of Head Heart Therapy in Chicago and podcast host of Conversations with a Wounded Healer. If you are someone who is on a journey of healing, then listen to this because Sarah takes us down a path of her own healing in conjunction with helping others. Sarah combines her own personal experiences with her clinical expertise to give us a refreshing look into the ways in which our behaviors and identities are related to past traumas. Most importantly, her message shows us how we can find growth and joy beyond the pain of trauma. If you're struggling to find access to joy, then you have to move towards the pain to do a little bit of healing and joy is is on the other side and it's it's such a hard journey and there's no prescription for how to get there but my experience and the experience of so many clients I've worked with prove that that's true that there is joy beyond the pain in today's episode you will learn about common trauma how to heal from painful life experiences and how to maintain hope and seek recovery Make sure you check out the show notes and see where you can connect with Sarah to get inspired and continue to learn from her wisdom like I do through our conversation. Welcome to another episode of Well, Not Perfect. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. I have admired your social media from afar. We have um, been in the same room a few times at the Sierra Tucson gratitude breakfast. And um, I feel like I was a fan from afar. (laughs) So I introduced myself once, but you were super busy and mingling and all the things. So I just want to let you know that I have been a fan from afar, Um, specifically your social media feed. I share your posts several times a week. And you mix humor with truth. And I find that so appealing. I do that a lot in my own work as a therapist. And how do you, how do you know what to pick? Or why do you think that resonates with people that follow you? Well, how do I know what to pick? I'll answer that question first. Honestly, it's really kind of how I'm feeling in the moment. I, you know, we were, we were talking about, you know, getting support with social media before we we started recording. And my problem is that the success that I've had with social media, I feel like, is because it's so real. Like, I woke up today and I'm like, what am I feeling today? Like, I'm feeling like a little, like, smashy. And so I wanted to post stuff specifically about anti-racism and and how do therapists learn more about that and do that work for themselves. And and so that's 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 how I choose what I do. And then, you know, that, that kind of answers the question of why I think it's so successful because it's real. Yeah. It's real. And it must be your personality too, because mm-hmm. for you to be attracted to those things must be your personality. And I have people sharing after I share because we find it so funny, especially the brutal <laughs> truths about being a therapist, because mm-hmm. you'll talk about how the front of us looks like we're all put together, but then the back of the meme shows, you know, what's going behind the scenes and we're mm-hmm. messy, scattered, confused, upset, all of the things. And you do that in just such a humorous and realistic way. I think from my own experiences, people are getting more comfortable with the idea that we are human behind the facade of what a therapist used to be projected as. Do you feel that way too in your own work? Yeah, I think that the pandemic kind of uh, pushed that forward even even more quickly. Um, I ended up writing a piece during the pandemic called Your Therapist is Hurting, and I, I really wanted to 
center the therapist experience and really humanize us because the I don't I don't know about your experiences but at our practice we were getting a lot of demands from from clients and people who weren't even clients yet because people are suffering people are hurting and it's it, obviously it's been really difficult for everyone but at the same time I'm still human and so for you to demand something of me and not respect that I have boundaries and I get to say yes and no and what's okay and what's not okay I felt like that was that was really missing in the desperation and so I wanted to share this is the experience of of us being human and us going through a pandemic at the same time as as clients yeah and by setting your own boundary you're actually taking care of them because you're going exactly. to commit yourself to things that you can do long term exactly rather than commit to the things that you can't do long term I recently lost my dad unexpected uh in mm. June and working through that as a therapist is a whole ep another episode and deciding on the spot how to disclose that about my leave and how I didn't have a date to return and working through those boundaries mm -hmm. I had to let go of my own expectation to be the professional who always showed up for them and give them a I don't know when I'm coming back and right. I'll help you work through that and give you options and I don't know and that right. was a boundary that was really gray and big for people, but it was the best boundary I could give because I told them the truth. Right. Yeah. I, I actually, the, and the, I'm, I swear I'm not trying to one up you, but this is just happening. I lost both my parents in 2014, the year that I started my practice. So I went through that too, right? Like my dad had died. And then nine months later, I lost my mom. And I did, I was really honest with my clients and I had sent them an email and just said, I'm taking some time. This is what I'm doing to take care of myself. I I will be back when I'm able to, you know, hold space for you. And several of them emailed me back and said, thank you for modeling how to care for yourself, right? I'm sure you experienced that with your clients too. Yeah, I had nothing but support, nothing right. but love. And that speaks to the therapeutic relationship that we have. And there were options for them to obviously continue their own work and understand that I have my limitations, right? The clients that I take now, because I am a practice owner and we have our tentacles and a lot of things, <laughs> I yeah. take clients who truly understand that. And we have right. more than one conversation with yep. new clients that say the availability that I have starts in four weeks. I can definitely see you once a week. It may not be the same time every week. It may not be the same day. I understand that that's not for everybody. And then mm -hmm. ongoing conversations about that so that no one feels as if they were kind of bamboozled that they exactly. thought they were get me at the same time every week. And there are therapists out there who can do that. And so the boundaries that I try to set, create that space so that I can feel energized and creative. Mm -hmm. I was listening to call her daddy podcast with uh, the host and Chelsea Handler. Oh God. And, I love Chelsea Handler so much. Yeah, and, Call Her Daddy podcast is just knocking it out of the park. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, she's amazing, hilarious, and appropriate, all the things. And uh, Chelsea Handler was just talking about, like, if I'm not taking care of myself, I'm not creative, and I hate my job, yes. I hate my life, all yep. the things. And so I really resonated with that. I was like, yes, like, my boundaries are to maintain my creativity so I can therefore be a creative mom, wife, owner, all of the things that I need to do. Um, so for me, creativity and freedom are my top two values as a person. Hmm. And then that drives my decisions kind of trickling down into everything. Hmm. And then that trickles down into boundaries. 
using that value-based life to then move into, well, what's a good decision based on freedom and creativity? It's almost like that becomes comes before, before family. Cause if I take care of my creativity and oh, I know yeah. I have freedom, then I can be loving and then I can be this and I can be that, but I can't be loving if I'm not free and creative. Mm-hmm. So okay. I've had to really like kind of line up my process of how I kind of make decisions. It actually goes into my next conversation because recently, um, following you, stalking you, <laughs> um, you have I'm very up, honored. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you brought up, um, more so recently I'm, I feel like this idea of workaholism. Can you talk about that for us? Sure. Um, and I think before I dig into that, I'm just going to give a little caveat. So I, I am in Workaholics Anonymous and anybody who's familiar with the 12 steps, there's, you know, the 11th tradition of, you know, we, we shouldn't, I can't, I, I can't, I can only recite them when I'm doing it in order. So I can't tell you exactly what it says, but essentially it's like, you know, we should maintain anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, and TV. That's what it is. And I believe this is my personal preference and a lot of people disagree with me and a, and a lot of people agree with me as well that this is any any sort of ism that needs a 12-step program is a product of trauma and I want to talk about the trauma. I want to talk about how the trauma manifests in my life and I can't do that if I have to be completely anonymous about it. So I just want to be really, uh, in let, let listeners know that this is an intentional decision to talk about my experience working with workaholism um and i won't talk about obviously the details of what happens in the rooms of the 12 step but but so just just that caveat there but basically how it came to be let's see how did i come to the the rooms of workaholics anonymous i started my business in 2014 both my parents died as i just said i started hiring people in 2015 started expanding in like 2016 2017 and I had, there were a series of, of things that happened. And as you probably know, starting a business as a therapist, we don't know what we're doing, right? <laughs> and so it was, it was really painful. A lot of the mistakes that I made and, and at, at one point in time, things had escalated to the point where I, I became suicidal and I was in my Al-Anon meeting and I had said like, gosh, I, I, I wonder if I need to go to Workaholics Anonymous and someone had shared that, you know, oh, it's codependency with work. And I'm like, okay, great. Codependent with work. I'm going to work with that. And I, I went to a, a six-day retreat and, you know, really worked on a, on a piece that was in my way at that time. And I came home and I set some boundaries, but nothing changed. And I, I kept hurting myself with work. And it was really this pressure that I put on myself to make sure that my staff were cared for in a very specific way and not not in a specific way that I thought in the way that they wanted to be cared for which is impossible and when the pandemic hit thank god I had hired an executive director right before the pandemic hit because it destroyed me just all of the fear of ins is insurance going to cover this you know, do we get a PPP or don't we get a PPP? Like, how do I get all my staff to transition? Just all of this stuff and wanting to care for them and wanting them to feel nurtured. And at the same time, we had adopted a, a dog, a coonhound, which I realized coonhounds are not like dachshunds. 
I thought, oh, they're hounds. The same, 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 right? Like 20 pounds, 50 pounds, same. No, not the same. This poor sweet little doggy just needed constant stimulation, constant attention. My husband's also a social worker, so we are literally trying to support people all day long through the pandemic, and she's howling. And I remember sitting on my couch with her howling about God knows what, and I was just like, I want to die. I want to die. And I've I've recognized in because I I was chronically suicidal as a child, and I actually didn't even realize that until a couple years ago. And as an adult, whenever that suicidal ideation shows up, I know that that means I have to make a major life change, that I, that there's something really, really wrong and I have to do something different. And because I work in the treatment industry, I knew who to call and I made a couple phone calls and I said, I need a trauma treatment program. Where do I go? And I ended up at, uh, at a treatment program in Arizona, spent three weeks, you know, letting my system settle also I was super hyper vigilant about COVID so it was kind of all these things piling on top of each other so you know my system got to settle I got to do some really intense really deep therapy work and I got to play and rest for the first time in like years and so I did a lot of work during the treatment program about how my trauma had manifested into pressuring myself you know trying to show up as the I've I'm not a mother so I've I, I think I've really created my my business as if I were the mother and so I hold myself as this benevolent mother I'm unconditionally loving I'm always there to support you but that I but I still have to hold boundaries and I, I still have to do things that work for me as a business owner and I think I was missing that piece and so when I got back um, you know I kind of slowly went back into work and I decided to start going to Workaholics Anonymous and and uh, the the post that you saw was I was celebrating a year. I've been I've been going for a year, and and you know I just got a sponsor. So you know again this is not like it's progress, not perfection, right? Like I'm not, uh, and I am not a, a spokesperson for Workaholics Anonymous or anything like that. But the journey really is about uncovering and and recognizing the trauma and and the effects of the trauma. Yeah. I can relate to so much of that. And I can imagine that anyone who starts a business can relate to that. I fortunately in a, in a, in a group of friends of girls who in my town all have a small business mm. and we fortunately can like talk about a lot of this. And so we yeah. realize that there's a universal experience when you go into a business and you invest everything into it. And then it's, at first, very lonely. That's what mm -hmm. I've been talking a lot about with one friend mm. who's starting up a beauty bar. It's lonely. The assembling furniture, setting up your <laughs> Wi-Fi. It's lonely. Yeah. And one of the things that I remember doing for myself, and I got a lot of backlash for it because it was financially very expensive, was I hired an office manager before I even had staff. And there was a lot of opinions from people saying, why are you doing that? It's just you, maybe it's one other part-time person. And I said, I'm doing this for myself because I am going to manifest this practice and I'm going to make her an essential worker. Yeah. Uh, so what I've realized is like, I, 
I one part did that for my self care, but the second part is that the way that I motivate myself is a little self-destructive. I will stretch the envelope to the point where if I don't follow through, I'll crash and burn. Yeah. So I make myself rise to the occasion because I have no choice other than to go bankrupt. So mm-hmm. I just push and I push and I push. And I always thought that that was kind of my personality. I always thought that was like kind of who I was. And it, because I've never quite fallen on my face, I failed a lot, but never in a catastrophic way. Right. Yeah. So I've always said, well, it's worked for me so far. I mean, I've lost a lot of time and money along the way doing things that weren't smart, but I never, you know, had the ultimate demise. Right. Right. But that's really not a good measure of, well, therefore I should continue to do that because I haven't quite killed myself metaphorically or physically. Right. I should keep stretching it. Um, it's a very twisted way to kind of coach yourself or motivate yourself. And I'm right there in the thick of that because I consciously know that's how I operate, but then it happens day to day where I'm like, oh my God, I'm stretching myself again. Here I am again, doing Mm -hmm. the maximum effort when no one asked me to. Right. No one asked me to do the maximum effort. So I think my my caution for my own work related, um, you know, codependency is like the sense of worth. Like I'm going to be worthy of a business owner once I've stretched myself and succeeded. Well, that's that's the manifestation of, I mean, what I, I don't know your, you know, childhood experience, but that's the manifestation of my childhood trauma of being objectified constantly. I was only worth what I looked like, how talented I was, what my grades were in school, what my parents could brag about. And then also at the same time, I, I, I walk this very fine line of be talented and be exceptional, but don't don't be too full of yourself because that's what my mom, my mom then would be jealous, honestly, uh, envious. And so there's this very fine line where I've let myself walk my whole life. And I don't know, over the past like nine months, something has really internally shifted where I was in my therapy session yesterday just like being so proud of myself and I have it's very rare that I've been able to experience that pride of what I've accomplished without also having that voice on the other side say well don't get too big for your britches but healthy pride is normal and it's okay I'm not a narcissist because I'm proud of what I've created but that's what I told myself my whole life and I'm I at least for today I'm on the other side of that and I'm I'm so grateful for what I've learned hi everyone Audrey here with a quick little offer for you I know that most of you will agree with me when I say Mondays can be tough, tiring, unmotivating, you get the gist. What if I told you you could start your week off feeling motivated and inspired instead? I created a membership program called Mondays with Audrey to do just that. Every Monday, you'll see me in your inbox with inspiration on a topic of the month, anything from sticking to your goals to setting healthy boundaries to mastering your morning routine. Each new month kicks off with a new topic and a new video followed by weekly emails to keep you motivated and accountable. This program is the place where I can stretch my wings, be myself, and give candid advice from the heart. Sound up your alley? Learn more at www.simplybecounseling.net slash Mondays with Audrey. 
and get access to a free month using the code WELLNOTPERFECT. Join me on Mondays and make it the best day of the week. You were a professional singer and your mother was too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was yep. where the dynamic came from between you and your mom. Honestly, it was everything. I mean, she she really wanted me to be a better version of her, but then was also jealous when I was. And I'm I'm actually in the process of, of writing a book right now. And the hardest pieces to write have been about my mother because she, ev- everyone, everyone who knew her loved her so much. She was very kind. She was very loving and giving and all of those things. But there that energy and our dynamic of her expectations of of who I was supposed to be um nobody else experienced that but me not even my brother you know because he wasn't a girl and he wasn't the firstborn um you know and she was kind of sandwiched in between my I think my grandma may have been kind of on the narcissistic side of the scale and put down my mother a lot and you know would compare the two of them and my grandma would always win those things and then my mom would compare she and I, and I would always win that too. So she was sandwiched in between people who she believed were better than her, but she also didn't want them to be better than her. She wanted she wanted to, to shine, but she was just too afraid. And I mean, there's, there's so many. I, I don't even really truly know what happened to her as a child that, that created all of this. And that's, I think, will forever be a mystery. But the way that it impacted me was really significantly traumatizing. And it's something that we we don't talk about because it's so hard to really put our fingers on. But I really want people to know this because I know there are thousands upon thousands of daughters who've, who've felt this way. Yeah. There's so much between a mother and a daughter and coming from an eating disorder background with my oh, yeah. specialty seeing that and working with clients every day who have a comparison to their moms in terms of, well, that's how my mom eats or that's how my mom doesn't eat and they want to really emulate it. And I've tried to unpack that with clinicians and it really comes down to the social modeling from day zero where daughters model after their mothers and Mm -hmm. every way. And it's not until there's a problem do we really realize how much we've compared ourselves to our moms because otherwise it just kind of goes in passing and we don't look at it again. But when you come when you come to an eating disorder and then you have to restore weight or you have to manage manage your meal plan in a home and you're eating with your family, you start to really realize how much you have always been watching your mom and you've always been mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to act according to the way that mm-hmm. she acts. Um, and, you know, those who do not have mothers, they yearn for that. They yearn for that social modeling and they yearn for that person to have taught them. So the absence of a mother or the presence of a mother, either way, you realize the impact that they have. And it's so intense. And some may realize that some may not, but I think we take that for granted because day to day feels like it's just a daughter and it's just a mother and we live with them. And right. So on some levels, we don't take time to unpack it. And sometimes I don't think we can unpack it until it's been uh, hindsight of, you know, looking back. It's taken me 40, 43, almost 43 years to really 
put words around what my experience was. And if she were alive right now, I wouldn't have been able to do that because it would still be it would still be happening. And the 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 gaslighting around that is just it's it's mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and gaslighting is a whole other conversation about how, you know, people unconsciously or consciously tricking mm-hmm. the that you're crazy for what you think and what you feel. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, you're great, but not too great. Mm-hmm. That's a gaslighting effect because it, it keeps mm-hmm. you in their, it keeps them, keeps you in their holds, right? It kind of yeah. keeps them, you know, be great. So I can brag about you for my own narcissistic needs. Exactly. But don't actually be great because you're going to injure me. Exactly. Yeah. That's, yep. That's it. Well done. And the complication <laughs> for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where were you, you know, 30 years ago? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. I know. And looking back, I mean, I imagine that a lot of memoirs are written after parents have passed because it's the freedom to then talk about them without all of those present fears or real threats that would live there waiting for you if you were writing these memoirs for about a present parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to, I'd have to really dive into that theory, but I do wonder if majority of memoirs are written post decree from parents. I wonder, I mean, there, there are still family members left who will take great offense to what I'm writing and it's a consideration and I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of how I include stories of people who are still alive. I'm trying to just tell my story and and do it in a way that's, you know, it's it's not a straight up memoir. It's it's also, you know, psychoeducation as as well. And I'm teaching myself, right? I I never really thought of my parents' divorce as being trauma until fairly recently. And so now I'm looking into high conflict divorce and I'm like, that really was really bad. I didn't think I never thought it was that bad. But looking back, there's so many things that I'm I'm discovering that were more impactful. Um, you know, so I, I'm calling it the ordinary trauma project because it's all ordinary stuff that, mm-hmm. you know, I I wasn't, you know, nobody molested me. Nobody like beat me other than, you know, it, kids our age were, were you know, spanked yeah. and I was hit with fly swatters. But, you know, that that's not the same as being punched in the face or you know, all all of the horrific things that we often hear our clients talk about as therapists, that wasn't my experience, but everything that I did experience accumulated into trauma. Yeah. And I think we've moved away from the terminology, little T and big T years ago. It was little trauma would be a divorce. A big T would be child, you know, molestation or something. Mm -hmm. We've moved away from that. We're kind of letting people honor the realities that any life experience marked you in right. some way, in a negative way, and created maladaptive coping skills is now right. allowed and not allowed, but is identified as trauma mm-hmm. and not categorized as well, a it's developmental thing. versus shock now, right? Developmental oh, being. Can you tell uh, us more about that? Yeah. So shock trauma is what everybody thinks of as trauma. So a car accident or you were in war or you witnessed a violent event or, or you know, those things happen to you. And then developmental trauma is what happens early in life between you and your caregivers. And one definition of it is, is it's just failure in the environment. Like I, I have a client who I started working with recently and her parents were amazing. Like she talks about them and I'm like, whoa, those people were really cool. But because of the work that they did, there was a lot of a lot of trauma that that a lot of trauma around safety and the the inability of the parents to really see how that was impacting their child. That was trauma. 
And so it can be the accumulation of little, little things. It can, it can simply be invalidation, right? That's one thing that I experienced constantly with my family was the invalidation of my feelings, right? Like, I, like you said, you said something earlier that, that triggered me to think, you know, I was the only one who felt like I saw the truth, right? When we're talking about gaslighting and I was told, no, everything here is fine, <laughs> you know? So, so developmental trauma can include relational trauma and shock trauma. And it's, it's really the, the, the chronicity of it, how chronic it is that makes it developmental. That makes sense because it's about the frequency and duration. So if it's right, if it's high intensity or short period of time, or if it's long duration, you know, long duration, but low intensity, meaning it's like sort of like a slowly insidious growing problem that doesn't really become shock worthy. It still has like affected the brain and and all those things well shock trauma has a beginning and an end so it's like you can put that time stamp on it and and often too the shock trauma um denotes that there's a a fear of dying like Mm -hmm. that you might die whereas the developmental trauma it, it it there is kind of this fear of annihilation if your caregivers aren't giving you the things that you need necessarily but it's not it's not the quite the same like life and death like a shock trauma is. Yeah, it's like a sense of safety, but it's not necessarily a sense of like I'm going to die. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that in a thousand memories that just popped up in my mind. Like all right. of the all mm-hmm. of the moments. Um, absolutely. So that's really helpful. And something that you said earlier about when you went to the treatment center was that you allowed your body to your nerves to kind of settle. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by letting nerves settle in your body when it relates to trauma treatment? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, very, very basically when we're under stress, you know, and it, it usually accumulates into some sort of chronic manifestation of that when we're under stress, our body produces stress chemicals like cortisol and adrenaline. And the accumulation of that internally feels different and feels more activated oftentimes than than if we're in like a rest state like they call it rest and digest so if your body is in rest and digest mode it's it's just like doing its job doing the natural and, and actually no i was about to say like it's doing the natural things but the stress response is also natural mm-hmm. but if if we're living in that chronic stressed state that's not healthy right that's we are supposed to be able to rest at some point I can't remember the name of the book, but I remember the author, Emily Nagoski, I think is her name. She and her sister just wrote a book. I think it's The Stress Cycle, something like that. But she talks a lot about being able to to figure out how to give your body the chance to, to settle. Um, and the only way I could do that was to remove the stimulus that was causing so much stress. And it was it was work and it was COVID. And I mean, obviously, I didn't relieve myself of COVID, but being in a, in a contained space with the same people for a, a certain period of time, all of us wearing masks, I felt safer there than I had since, since COVID had started. So yeah, allowing my body to remember that it was safe because I had felt unsafe for so long. And I, it, I've been in this like fight or flight mode for, it literally had been like three or four years. Yeah, absolutely. And people will always experience all three fight flight or freeze and fawn there's a fourth tell me about that fawn is more of a people pleasing so um it's 
it's a it's a way that we react obviously relationally when when the threat is more relational and some people are going to people please and want to connect and uh and and that sort of thing yeah yeah exactly yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i think about fight flight freeze as like a evolutionary very primitive response and so people pleasing doesn't quite register for me but then when you say that i think about being very passive like my puppy who goes to a large dog instantly submisses. It's not any of the flight, flight or freezes. That's funny. It's the passive and that, Mm -hmm. you know, that really kind of also upsets me because I think about all of the people who have been sexually assaulted and they, they, I've heard them say like, I didn't fight. Um, I didn't run away. I, um, you know, maybe you froze, but then there's this like, sort of like, but like, and what I think some sexual assault victims don't talk about is there is some level of fawning and it's because of a safety mechanism to stay alive. Like if I, mm-hmm. if I do, if I right. don't seem upset, then they won't kill me. Well, this is part of the question about some, some allegations about the Me Too movement, right? Like I, that makes me think of Aziz Ansari and the the allegations that were against him and basically the situation was you know he he approached this uh, he I think he invited this woman to his home wanted oral sex she initially said no but then she ended up doing it anyway and then you know shared this story that he had convinced her to do it and it's that's about power right and we often fawn in the face of power because and this is back to like developmental trauma we want to stay connected to whomever it is that's in power which was our parents as children right that's the attachment system we want to stay connected to that and so that's i think where the fawn mechanism is is really important and i think that's a beautiful example with sexual assault yeah. And so mm-hmm. many people can relate to that. How many, How many times have we been? Right. I mean, yep. I, I would venture a guess that literally almost every person has been in a sexual situation where they ended up doing something they didn't want to do because they cared about the other person or they were afraid of the other person or something along those lines. I think about on a lower level in the city, writing the L and men always telling me, smile, pretty girl and just catcalling me. And sometimes I gave in and then I would hate myself mm-hmm. for giving in because I thought, well, I'm so weak and I should have <laughs> just picked them. And, you know, and I got so mad at myself for not, cause I think about what, what do I want my daughter to do in those moments? You know, I just want her to rip the dude apart, but I'm like, why did I smile at him? Or why did I do a cute little movement? You know, and that has always made me feel like maybe I'm not as tough or something, but funny. No, this is, this is culture. This is the culture, Mm -hmm. right? It's a patriarchal culture. Men have the power. And so there's only so many options that we have, right? If you were to fight in that, you would be called a bitch because of the patriarchy, right? So it puts the blame on, on us as women or, and I don't want to necessarily gender it because I think LGBT folks, trans folks have, have experienced this as well. Right. So it's, you know, it's a minority position. It's a minority position. Yeah. Whenever, if you're in the minority position, you don't have the power compared to Mm -hmm. majority. Recently, a man told me to smile when I was walking through the bar and my husband (laughs) heard him and he was shocked. And he, I don't think ever witnessed it because he no. didn't know. And I'm like, 
I have heard that since I was 18 living right. in this. Oh place. yeah. That is not. And he was like disgusted. Right. And so his reaction validated how awful it was because I had gotten desensitized mm-hmm. back then and had just gotten used to that. Mm-hmm. And you know, just kind of jokingly label myself as the resting, resting bitch face mm-hmm. and right. letting that kind of be a joke because you get those cat calls and then what do you do? You, you fawn, right? And so you kind of play into it because you don't want to get hurt. Just like my puppy who is still very primitive um, in his behaviors. And that's, that's what it comes down to, right? I mean, in trauma work, you're the specialist. Is it still the idea that we are evolutionary beings in our brains, that we're still acting from that that early, early days? Or is the theory different now? That's that's how I have been trained, um, but I'm not a trauma specialist. So I'm kind of wondering where it stands today. Well, the thing that I've learned in my in my training with NARM, the neuroeffective relational model, is that it's less it's less about like the evolutionary thing, but the way that we carry forward what was done to us as children and we do it to ourselves now um so you know when when we think about developmental trauma it's like i i don't i don't react in a, in a certain way just because that was my trauma i react in that way because it's familiar and because i know i know what the lines are i know all my all my blocking i know where to get is my theater theater uh language talking but um but I keep doing it to myself too. And and that's not to blame the victim, but it's to remind us that we do have agency and we do have choices and the ability to change our relationship with ourselves in order to then change our patterns. This is um, heading home for me and just full disclosure is I've always wanted to make my dad proud. He'd be the first person mm-hmm. I would call if mm. if I did something well. And if I didn't do something well, he'd be the first one I'd call just to get permission to not have done it well. Mm-hmm. And since his passing, um, I have been struggling with motivation because it's kind of like, I don't know how to act if I don't have anyone to make proud. And so I've been in this place where mm-hmm. I want to grow the business this way. I want to do this thing. And I used to just say unconsciously, would this make him proud? And there, therefore that was my answer. I would mm-hmm. go do it. And now he's not here. And I do have people to, to make proud, of course, but it's a whole different way of making a decision because the way I made a decision as a kid mm-hmm. was the way I made a decision until now. And now I don't have that same plan in a sense for myself. I mean, I didn't know it was a plan. I didn't know that that's how I operated, but of course, you mm-hmm. know, you learn and grow. So I would agree with you that the way you acted as a kid kind of manifests into adulthood. So if people are doing that as children and into adulthood, is that where we start to see the, what we call acting out? Or people start to just act out in terms of their behaviors where you look at that and it doesn't make sense to you it doesn't have context like they're grossly opinionated about something is that kind of like a replay of childhood in terms of trying to navigate the world if they're upset or frustrated with someone that they really like latch onto their opinions and ride further would that be a result of some sort of childhood dynamic I mean, it's it's hard to say without, you know, really digging into the details of it. But I 
I think that the way that our culture is right now, I don't think that there's anyone who's not traumatized in some way. And so, I mean, this might be a very vague blanket answer, but I do think almost everything is a product of trauma. And if we're acting in ways that are harming ourselves or harming others, that's not what we want for ourselves. It's uh, everyone's really, I think, well, not everyone, most people are probably doing the best that they can. And yeah, our, our, our early life experiences and the way that we carry them forward, of course, are going to continue to impact us and t- until we're able to really look at and be compassionate with with those those maladaptive patterns or survival strategies, as they call them in NARM, um, and and then be be with them. And then once we're the the irony is that all all we have to do really is be with them compassionately, and then they shift. But it is so hard for a traumatized person to be compassionate with ourselves that's the real that's the real hurdle and the real magic is personal growth something that you've always been interested in but you haven't really known where to start if your answer is yes then i wrote an entire planner series with you in mind this planner series is broken down into five steps that are focused on helping you become more resilient and confident Each step includes pages of insight and skills from my personal and professional experiences and ends with 30 days of space for you to practice what you've learned. It's as simple as that. Five steps towards growth and resilience. Learn more at www.buplanner.com and be sure to check out the subscription option, which gets you a planner delivered to your door every month for the next five months. Since you're a well, not perfect listener, you can get 10% off your order using code WELLNOTPERFECT. Happy growing! What are your thoughts on why the compassion is so challenging when we're facing ourselves and going through things and being grossly hard on ourselves in a way that we'd never meet as somebody else? Well, from so if, if we want to look at from the developmental trauma perspective, a child is always going to blame themselves in a in a bad situation. So let's just take divorce because it's a really easy example, right? We know that children always blame themselves for the divorce. It's not because the child is narcissistic. That's developmentally appropriate. And the child is doing that in order to stay connected to both parents at the same time, right? So we learn how to shame ourselves really early and that becomes normal. And so we carry that into into our adulthood and and then compassion can feel compassion can feel especially dangerous when our caregivers were duplicitous or not necessarily like unconditionally loving. So if you think if you think of a tiny child who trusts their their parent and they're going to their parent for compassion and then they don't get compassion they actually get abuse or pain then you're going to associate that desire with compassion for for with with pain um and and some of us really struggle to to tolerate love because of that because it's scary at the same time like we want it but we also fear it most yeah i mean i think i think that the hardest part about all of this is knowing that you're not going to be perfect and you're not going to do everything right for yourself or for your family and knowing that, and then continuing to live life. It's just this hard mm-hmm. thing to reconcile is like, 
you're going to work on the work-life balance. Like we're going to work on trying not to overcommit ourselves to work or how we're going to treat our kids. And then at the end of the day, we're still undoing, undoing or relearning. I think of it as unlearning, right? Because our culture and our traumatized families have taught us ways of, of being in the world that just, it's not like we are not a happy society (laughs) you know there is so much pain and trauma and suicide and addiction and eating disorders right and all the things I don't think I don't think that that that's an accident I think that you know the the squeeze of capitalism and racism and and all of these bigger systemic things that traumatize families and then we keep passing them down to each other it's accumulated in a way now that I I don't know. I mean, obviously, I've only been around for 42 and change years, but I, I don't know if it's been this dire before. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I think what we're trying to do as therapists is to do that micro level change with each individual that we see and that we help with our practice and believe that it's going to have impact on the micro, on the macro level if we keep staying consistent and pursuing and doing our part. Because otherwise, if we can't find the hope in changing the system, it's going to be even more dire. Um, so I want to end the show on one more question. And my question is with all that, you know, and all that you've been through, how do you maintain hope for a better future? Because you do, I assume, given all of the work that you're doing for your community, um, through podcasting and, through your practice more. So what keeps giving you hope and pushing to be as creative as you are? Uh, I mean, if I'm really honest, I don't have hope every day. There there are days where it, it feels like there's more hardship than there is joy, and that's normal. And I think I allow myself that time and that space to experience that hopelessness. And I happen to be a very, like, humanitarian type driven person and it's just it it is it's just what I meant to do in this lifetime is create change and so I just trust that that hope comes back and I don't even know if it's hope but it's it's more of a a wish a wish for change and for things to get better for people who are in pain but at the same time I I guess I hold you know a, a pretty spiritual belief that um this is the way it's supposed to be on some level, which might not make sense to, to listeners who don't have, you know, some sort of like spiritual understanding. And, you know, it, that doesn't mean that it's okay that everything is happening, but I do have a level of, I, I have to, this is how I get through life is I have to know that on some level we're doing what we're supposed to do. And I don't know what the end is going to look like. I don't know if there is an end, who knows? I mean, I guess if we literally destroy the planet, there will be an end. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. And I, I, I have joy in my life now that I, I haven't had access to in a really long time because of my healing journey. So that, I, I guess maybe that's a takeaway for listeners is, is if you're struggling to find access to joy, then you have to move towards the pain to do a little bit of healing and joy is is on the other side and it's it's such a hard journey and there's no prescription for how to get there but 
my experience and the experience of so many clients I've worked with and other people that I've known prove that that's true, that there is joy beyond the pain. Yeah. I think what you said earlier, you emphasized an and, and the sadness and joy to have that yin and the yang and to go through sadness, to find joy, because if you don't have sadness, you can't measure joy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, because you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To have white, you know, to, you know, to have, to have one thing, you need the other. And oftentimes we just want the good. And so I think what you're saying is, is that through having hope or having belief that things will be better, you appreciate the sadness, you appreciate the more negative parts of life, because that's then the, the measure that we have that we know when good is good. Like, how do you know good is good unless you have a bad? There would be no comparison. It would just be this blanket experience. And who's to say we would even notice that our, that, that is joy. Um, so I appreciate that dialectic of, of sadness and joy at the same time and how to have both. And that's actually the trick to get through the days, um, good, bad, or in between. On that note, I am just so grateful to have learned from you and to have picked your brain and for you to educate me and educate everybody else here with us today. I know for a fact, without a doubt, that there are people in mind I'm sending it to and they're going to learn from. So I just want to say thank you. And if anyone wants to find you or contact you on social or otherwise, where's the best place to reach you? Instagram is is my favorite. So I'm at Head Heart Therapy at Instagram and my practice is called Head Heart Therapy and that's headhearttherapy.com. And if you want to listen to my podcast, it's called Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Yes. Follow her social media. There's nothing more joyful in your day than that. <laughs> have an uncomfortable, funny laugh or a irreverent little meme to send to friends who are in therapy who get it. <laughs> so Again, thank you so much. And this is another episode of 12. Thank you for listening to season two. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button and consider leaving me a review. And for more information on all things podcast, check us out at Instagram, well, not perfect and DM us any questions you have and content that you'd love to see this season. See you next week.